it's your boy, and welcome to episode 61 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why you think others would also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. My throat is cached. Uh, it's, I can't remember the last time my voice um, was this far gone. And it's not because I was doing anything where I was speaking a lot or I was yelling or screaming or anything like that. But um, I was up till seven in the morning last night. Uh, I worked a late shift. I worked until midnight. I ended up having to stay till 1230. Um, got off, took like 30 minutes to decompress. And uh, I read until the sun came up. And uh, your boy's been reading a lot. I think I mentioned at the end of the last episode that um, I've been reading so much and I've had all these thoughts about the books that I've been reading that I wanted to share. Um, but uh, that's the nature of the show. I, <laughs> I show up wanting to talk about certain things and I, ended up ta- I end up talking about who, who the fuck knows uh, what we get into. But, um, but uh, the thing I knew I had to talk about, and I'm hoping it takes us some other places also, um, is uh, I, I've been reading The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. And um, I, I don't know if I've gone into it before on this podcast, but The Exorcist is one of the most important movies in my life. And it's this, you know, it's I'm like most people. It, it It's the scariest movie I've ever seen. And I think when I saw it as a kid, it was legitimately traumatizing. Um, you know, not the way that like, uh, I don't know, being sexually assaulted would. But I mean... It literally was a trauma for me. Uh, I first saw it, I was probably like 11 years old. I was spending the night at, uh, uh, my brother and I were both spending the night at our, at our mutual friend's house. Um, I won't say his name, I'll just say it starts with a C. And so we were at C's house, and he was kind of a, from a family like ours, where there just weren't a lot of rules in the house. Um, you know, I'm thinking of another friend of ours in particular, who we were growing up with, who came from a completely different family from ours, where... By comparison, we thought his parents were very over overprotective. You know, um, <laughs> it sounds silly to say, but it's like he couldn't watch certain movies, he couldn't eat certain things, he had a very strict bedtime. Um, uh, and I, I think I even sensed, even though my brother and I were good kids growing up, at least I think so, I always sensed some appreh- apprehension on the part of this other friend of ours from his parents. You know, when... Uh, you know, me and my brother came over, there was just always a sense that they had some apprehension about us. And now that I'm older, I don't think it had as much to do with who we were as people as much as the family that we came from. And it's not that we came from a bad family, but when I look back on my childhood and just knowing who my parents are, I just, it makes sense to me that um, other parents probably approach us with some apprehension or at least some confusion. Um, I know I'm being vague about it, but... Um, I'm all I'm saying is the person that we ended up spending the night with uh, and watching the exorcist with came from a family like ours where there just wasn't a lot of structure. There wasn't a lot of boundaries, you know? And, uh, I remember, uh, we had gone to the video store and I think there were two movies that we rented. One was a movie called killer clowns from outer space, uh, which you can, I think you can watch it on Netflix now. I think I saw the title card. It's awful from what I remember. Um, but that is a movie you can see if you wanted to. Um, so we may have watched that first, but, uh, we ended up watching The Exorcist. 
And one great thing about the movie, The Exorcist, which is also great about the book, is that it's a very slow burn. It takes a long time for things to really get going. Um, uh, the first half of the novel is just a lot of dialogue, and, you know, there's some scratching in the attic. Um, you know, and there's some, there's some weird stuff that starts to, starts to take place, but it's not until about halfway through the book where things really go off the rails and, uh, the movie's the same way. It's just, uh, it's just a nice slow burn and, and it's, it's the type of filming that just doesn't get made anymore because people don't have the attention span for it. And frankly, even now, if you go back and watch The Exorcist, um, you might be a little bored with it in the beginning. Um... And also, I think there's this other part too. I was I was just talking with my brother about this, checking in with him, kind of, expl- and I, I told him I had been up reading The Exorcist, and and he reminded me that he and his wife saw it in the theaters last Halloween. And normally, his wife is someone who just doesn't do well with scary movies. Um, I think they had watched. It was kind of funny actually. My brother texted me and said that they were watching Good Time, the Safi Brothers film. Uh, these are the same people who did um, Uncut Gems which was a movie that when they saw it in theaters, his wife had to walk out. It was just too uh, overwhelming. You know, anyone who's seen that movie can tell you it's filmed in such a way that it's, it's annoying that there's constant noise. It's very grating. It's very tense. And his wife couldn't take it. So um, when he reminded me that they had seen the exorcist, I said, well, your wife just must've, she must've been out of her mind. And he said, actually, no, I think people who see it as an adult, uh, they're not that, spooked out by it, you know, um, you know, maybe it's dated. Uh, maybe it's just, maybe these things just aren't as scary when you're an adult, but that, and, and in some ways I get that. I think the pacing is different, which is sort of what I'm talking about here. Um, another thing that you don't really get hip to until time passes and you look back on things is the technical limitations. And I'm not just talking about special effects. I'm talking about even things like, uh, sound sync, image quality, focus, um, uh, audio editing, uh, color grading, I just, all sorts of weird stuff. Pacing, the editing of pacing is just very different. Um, you know, we, we're, we're just not, we're not used to how, because we can be so precise now with edits or, or sound or whatever it is because of digital technology, we forget that these things were much harder to do in an analog world, you know, where editing was a matter of literally cutting tape and splicing it together and sound was the same way. Um, so it's easy to go back and watch a movie like The Exorcist, and there is a, you know, it's the same thing as, like, we're so used to hearing auto-tune now on vocals, that if you just go back to the early 2000s and listen to, a, a like, a top 40 pop song uh, that was done by, you know, an alternative rock band where there, you know, probably was not there. I mean, obviously, auto-tune was starting to come in there, but there's not a lot. It's you know, it's, it's, you can hear that people sing out of key and it's not that they're singing poorly. They're singing how people normally sing, which is not perfect, but because we're so used to auto tune and perfection. And when you record music, every, everything is put on the grid. You know, you record the drum track, you go back and line it up perfectly with the metronome. And then every other track gets lined up perfectly. Also, because we're so used to that, you can hear recordings that used to sound perfectly fine. And there's just something off about it now. It just rubs you. You hear the float of the rhythm. You hear um, the, you know, the, the, the choruses just don't hit as hard because they're not as layered. You know, either they were limited by the track count or just it's what it was. Um, 
So there, so I guess I'm saying there can be that element to movies also. You can just go back and watch an old movie, and um, you just don't get lost in it as easy. But then there are films that seem timeless. I'm hoping one comes to mind quickly, but um, you know, it just has that much more impact when you do see an old movie that looks uh, timeless. I don't know. Citizen Kane came to mind. I know that's kind of a cliche example, and of course, there are some shots in Citizen Kane that uh, are going to look dated. But overall, like, you know, the fundamentals, so anyone who has mastered the fundamentals of filmmaking, that, that stuff is timeless. Um, for the same reason that when you go back and listen to records like Zeppelin, uh, I don't pretend to know all that went on in the editing of those records. But for the most part, if you were a band like Zeppelin, you can do it live. You know, maybe you were inebriated and so maybe the live show is affected by your drug intake, but you, that, that's your band. You had to kick ass as a band. Um, where now that's sort of seen as a luxury. But anyway, I'm getting off topic with the music stuff. The point is, for me, seeing The Exorcist was truly truly traumatizing. And it wasn't just scary for me in the way that jump movies are scary. Um, I remember seeing entire scenes that were just mind-shatteringly scary. Um... And I say it was traumatizing because in a way it really, I had never experienced anything like that. I, 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 and I'm not supposed to say literally, but it's true. I literally didn't know that you could feel that afraid. You know, I had never felt that scared before in my life. And it, it wasn't just like fear. It was, uh, I was hearing things. I was hearing language I never heard. I was seeing images I never conjured in my wildest nightmares, um, and it was just, I, I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of another movie-watching experience that was so viscerally impactful, you know? And I, I, I was reading the book, and I was sort of, I was, I was taken back to that place because I, I, I probably read the book when I was like 14 or 15, and, and I remember being really good. So I was, you know, I had no qualms picking it up. I basically... Uh, finished the last book I was reading, which was Carrie by Stephen King, which maybe I'll have some words about also, which was incredible. I mean, Stephen King is a truly great writer. Um, and uh, maybe not perfect. And, uh, you know, he's not Vonnegut, say. I mean, when you read something like Vonnegut, it's not just good writing and good storytelling. I mean, it, there's a whole nother, there's structure, there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Um it's like unqualified high high art, and I would say Stephen King actually gets there also a lot of times. But, um, but I guess the other contrast to that, you know, if Vonnegut's at one end of the spectrum, a lot of people want to put Stephen King at another end of the spectrum, and I, and I don't think that's fair. I think Stephen King is uh, is a truly great writer. When I compare him to someone like Michael Crichton, you know, I reread Sphere which was not as great, <laughs> you know, very important, uh, novel for me growing up, which I went back and read and it's not great. It's, uh, you know, nothing new there. Uh, plenty of other novels and movies have touched on similar topics and done much better. Um, and it's just kind of, I don't know. It's just, it's, it kind of, it's the type of writing that really holds your hand through the process. The characters are really one dimensional. Um, and there's actually, you know, the, there's a lot of, uh, there, there's actually a lot of misogyny. There's one character, her name is Beth. And through the novel, she's kind of this sort of assertive, kind of feminist, kind of sticks up for herself kind of character, which you kind of admire. And then at the end, Crichton sort of talks about how she's a perpetual victim and how she blames the world and all sorts of stuff. So 
Um, just funny to see how far we've come. And also, now that I'm thinking about it, reading Jurassic Park, which I just read for the first time, which, uh, again, you know, the ideas there, I understand why Steven Spielberg made a great movie from the novel. Uh, and, and, and another example where the, the novel's fine, it reads really well, it's, it's engrossing enough. Um, also very slow, nothing happens for the first part of the, part of the novel. There's a lot of science talk. Like, I'm surprised there's that much science talk in it. Um, and it really sets up the sciences and, wow, he's really thought this concept through. But then what he actually has to do to make the narrative happen, um, a lot of dumb stuff. Like, oh, we're brilliant people, yet, uh, of course, we hardwired the alarm system so that if X happens, the entire system's, system goes down. And you just think, well, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Um, but uh, where am I going with all this? Uh, I am trying to say, I guess I'm trying to get back to the idea that um, <laughs> I was reading The Exorcist. It was engrossing. And like the, like the movie, it was terrifying. Um, and as I was getting through the book, I was, you know, and as weird things were starting to happen, I was starting to feel that icy grip on the back of my neck as I was reading it. As certain things would happen, you know, there would be the climax of the chapter where something spooky would happen. And I would just feel this like, Ugh, like this spooky feeling. And it's weird when that happens with a book because it's in your mind, you know? It's not just a movie that you can sort of, I don't know, just kind of turn off and turn away from. I find when I'm reading a scary book, it's like I actually start to populate the room I'm in with the monsters. And uh, one, I was kind of doing it with Carrie a little bit. I mean, Carrie was like also truly engrossing. I mean, as it's very swift, it moves very uh, quickly. It's very succinct. Um, and it's, and it's just incredibly well-written and also well-structured and also has really interesting, uh, symbolism in this kind of circular structure with like religious symbolism with the blood of Jesus and then Carrie's menstruation. Um, and then getting, having the blood poured on her at the end and just, I, I don't know. It's just a, it's a really good book. If you haven't read Carrie, you should, but it sort of lingers a little bit. It's a little spooky. And when I was reading The Exorcist, I get off work, 12.30, take about 30 minutes, I start reading again. I was in the thick of the book now. I was probably halfway through it. And after I started doing my reading, I get so, like, kind of freaked out. I start doing stupid things where I start feeling like a kid again, which is like, you know, at some points I have to, like, put my bookmark in and, like, take a leak or something. And it's like, I feel kind of spooked out just walking to the bathroom, (laughs) Or when I'm actually going to the bathroom, you know, I have this dark window, like, on the toilet. If you're sitting there or even standing there, there's, like, you know, this dark window, this sort of fogged-out glassy window. It's the middle of the night. It's, like, 3 in the morning, and it's, like, I'm terrified. All of a sudden, I'm going to see Reagan's, uh, who's the uh, the young girl in The Exorcist. I'm going to see her demonic face, like, just pressed up against the glass all of a sudden. Or as I'm laying in bed, I'm, like, on my belly, just sort of reading, laying down, And I start getting spooked because I can't see behind me as if Reagan's going to like, you know, come out of the bathroom door or just in the middle of the night, you hear weird noises. It's just starting to freak me the fuck out. And then you really start torturing yourself when you start, you know, in the preface of Night Shift, Stephen King talks about this idea. Like, you know, he's doesn't believe in the supernatural, but like most of us, he feels spooked like leaving his leg exposed on the bed just in case the monster reaches up and fucking grabs you. 
you know, I'm reading this book and it's like, I'm start, I'm starting to picture Reagan, like crawling out from under the bed or just like jumping up or opening my closet. And it's just like, you start torturing yourself psychologically. And it sounds stupid to say, but I'm, I'm not shitting you when I say once I started reading, I was so freaked out. I told myself, you're going to stay up until the sun comes up because I didn't want to like, I started yawning, but I was like, just push through because I, I, I honestly didn't want to have the experience of like closing my book, turning out the lights and laying in bed with all the junk I had just put from this novel in my head, just kind of festering. You know, a lot of people talk about this deleted scene from the Exorcist movie where Reagan comes down the stairs like a spider backwards. It looks fucking awful in the movie. It's not cool at all. But in the book, the way it's described is fucking horrific. And uh, and there's something about the book, too, which is I've seen the movie you know, a dozen times. I know it very well. And... Uh, I guess the things, the same thing kind of happened with uh, Jurassic Park also, which is, I've seen the movie, I know the film, and yet when you read the book, I guess there's this concern that you're just going to picture the movie in your head, you know, and I kind of get that. There's certainly parts as I'm reading The Exorcist, I'm equating it with the movie. But in some ways, I knew I was reading a really good book because I was lost in the world that the book created, you know, and I wasn't picturing the actors from the movie. Now, that's weird when you think about that. And the same thing happened with Chuck Palahniuk when I, I just reread Fight Club, which I don't think we spent a lot of time talking about. But I've been thinking about this because I would say most of the books that I've read recently all have movie adaptations. And I've seen all those movies. And yet, as I read the books, I don't always, sometimes I do, but I don't always picture the world of the movie I wonder if that's a good sign that you're in the hands of, a, of, of someone who's a truly talented writer. You know, it really shows you that they're able, even though you already have this precedent of, of seeing the movie, they do such a good job of painting a picture that you almost have to let some of that stuff go to accommodate what they're writing about. Um, and especially with something like The Exorcist. And this goes, and you know, I've talked about Jonathan Blow, the video game maker, um, one of the major takeaways I've had from just conversations I've heard of him is just different modalities of expression um, and what certain um, uh, certain f- uh, art formats do well that others don't. Video games do certain things very well. They're good at doing educational stuff, but video games are not very good at being movies, which is what most people want them to be. You know, And movies are very good at telling a certain type of story. Um, and there's a lot that's in The Exorcist that translates very well to... Uh, to film, if it's done right, a lot of the horror, a lot of the visual, nightmarish kind of stuff. But there's something that the novel does too that you just can't express in film. And as you're reading the novel, there's so many other layers that you go, "Oh, that's what they were going for in the film," or "That that's why that that dialogue is there, but that wasn't clear to me." Um, for example, Reagan, who's possessed, has a lot of personalities um, that the demon sort of brings forth, right? Um, you know, in the movie, it's not clear that the voices are coming from different, are supposed to be different characters that you've met earlier in the movie. Um, but in the book, that's much clearer. Uh, there's a lot going on in the book that's much clearer. But obviously, books are very good at getting into the psychologies of characters. And as you read the book, The Exorcist, well, I'll say this first. I remember when I first got The Exorcist on DVD, years after seeing it for the first time on VHS, from Blockbuster 
when I got the DVD for myself, William Friedkin, or Billy Friedkin, whatever you want to say, the director of the film, he had this intro where, you know, it's a little bit of, uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, I don't know, people write their own story, they want to reframe how a movie's experienced, especially after it's been successful. It's like, they, they know The Exorcist is taken as a great horror movie, but they almost have this preface, because they kind of want to contextualize, they want, they want to give it a new spin, they want you to spe- see it through a new lens, and it's not that I think he's wrong, but there was something about this intro that always stood out to me. They have this sort of director's introduction to The Exorcist, you know, maybe it's like the 20 or 25th anniversary sort of DVD, whatever the hell. But he's saying, you know, a lot of people think this is a horror movie, but really it's a movie about good and evil. And depending on who you are, that'll be your takeaway from the film. You know, if you believe that the world is a good place where good ultimately triumphs over evil, you'll see that in the film. But if you believe that the world is a dark place where there's evil lurking around every corner, that will be your takeaway from the film. And that's true. I, I think that's pretty clear in the movie and in the book especially. But the thing that the book is really about, I think, is about a crisis of faith. And I don't whether it's Slaughterhouse-Five, whether it's Carrie, all these sorts of things, you know, and maybe this is uh, Captain Obvious to the rescue here, but, you know, the reason that they're good is because the plot is one thing, or the dressing is one thing, but, you know, the struts, the structure is something else entirely, and it's something accessible. You know, obviously The Exorcist is scary because it's just fucking scary. But it's scary for very specific reasons. You know, it's not an accident, I don't think. <clears throat> it's not an accident that the girl who's possessed in The Exorcist and the horrible things that happen to this person are is like a 12-year-old girl. You know, one of the most vulnerable members of the population, right? Uh, just They're like walking prey for predators. And that is something that I think is, you know, psychologically communicated in in the book and in the movie also but the for some reason i don't know why it just is not it, it doesn't it's not as you would think it would be it would hit you stronger because you're seeing it visually in the movie but there's something about the book especially that really conveys the idea like can you believe that this is happening to a child can you believe that the words you're hearing come out of this is coming out of the mouth of a child these horrible things are happening to a child and the whole dynamic between uh the mother chris and her daughter is just drawn out really well, and especially the internal, you know, the, the crises of faith that Father Karras, one of, the, one of the priests of the novel, is sort of dealing with. And, you know, the idea that that is kind of the battle that's taking place during the exorcism. It's this crisis of faith that Father, crisis of faith that Father Karras has, and then Father Marin, who's like the exorcist. This sort of inevitable battle that he's been you know, waging with this demon Pazuzu or whatever the fuck, um, that it was sort of faded, that Marin sort of knows, spoiler alert, that when he shows up to the exorcist that he's going to die. Um, you know, and Father Karras becomes this sort of uh, martyr himself, right? Uh, if you've seen the film, you know the ending. He basically fights the demon <laughs> and, and tells him to, like, enter him, and he jumps out the window. He saves the girl and ends up killing himself. Um, yeah, but Exorcist, yeah, a terrifying book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm also thinking about Carrie. I was, um, 
I mean, I had forgotten. I had forgotten that. Um, uh, I think even before I had read it, but because I was such a big Stephen King fan growing up, I remember uh, naming my first dog after the novel Carrie. Our first dog was named Carrie. She was a black and white Jack Russell Terrier, I think. It's a little spotted Jack Russell Terrier. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I completely forgotten about that. Um, but uh, two things came up. I've been thinking about, you know, we talked about the whole sore loser thing, the whole GG um, chess thing, whatever. You know, The Queen's Gambit is like the number one streaming show on Netflix right now, and it had me thinking about searching for Bobby Fischer and sportsmanship and the election and Biden and Trump, you know, and all that sort of shit. Uh, but one thing that was sort of an interesting point of connection between all this movie and film stuff that I'm taking in is I saw the first episode of The Queen's Gambit a couple weeks ago, um, and it's fine. It's uh, it's okay. Uh, watched the second episode with my girlfriend the other day, and uh, there was an interesting moment. Uh, in the, In the second episode, she's playing her first tournament. She's doing really, really well. And she's in the middle of this great match, and she has to excuse herself. She runs to the bathroom, and she has her first menstruation. And there's this scene where she's, like, trying to, like, deal with the blood, and she has to, like, get a sanitary napkin from another woman who happens to walk into the restroom. But if you've ever read the story Carrie, or if you've seen the movie, you know, that's the inciting incident of the whole novel. Uh, Carrie White, I think is her name, is the, is the, is the main person of that story. And the novel opens with her in the shower after PE class and menstruating for the first time. And because she is raised in this uh, fundamentalist religious nut jobs house who never explains sex to her or sexual development. She thinks she's dying. She thinks that something's wrong with her and all the girls in the restroom who are incredibly cruel, just like throw sanitary napkins at her and, and scream, plug it up. Um, just interesting, but I guess in a way it makes sense. They're kind of connected and it's in some ways it's why I think, you know, a lot of people are watching it, so I feel kind of uh, like a grouch bringing it up, but it's not great, The Queen's Gambit. And you'd think it'd be right up my alley because it's about chess. And the chess stuff is kind of interesting. Um, but there's something about the plot that just... I, it's very predictable. It's very cliche. You know, uh, every aspect... You know, there's a lot of interesting things that come together in that show, but any but every single aspect of it is portrayed completely uh, cliche. Uh, she's a chess player. Of course, she's a prodigy. She's gifted. Um, you know, she goes to a, uh, you know, what is it? A, a orphanage for girls. Of course, you know, she's kind of treated like shit. Um, she goes to school finally, or she gets adopted. Of course, she's adopted into a family because of the time period where, uh, you know, the mother is kind of a Stepford wife, alcoholic, pill popper, um, you know, trying to be, you know, uh, a perfect housewife for her um, aloof and estranged, um, you know, um, misogynistic husband. Um, and of course she goes to school and nobody likes the new girl and there's the, the cool girls who shun her. And of course there's the awkward scene where she goes to the cafeteria for the first time and she can't sit with the cool girls and they make fun of her sneakers. And at one point you can guess she's putting her books in her locker and somebody walks by and gives her a little shove and of course she shows up for her first chess tournament and they're like, you can't play, you're a girl. And then lo and behold, what happens, she starts playing and kicking everybody's ass. So, I mean, it pretty much writes itself, right? I will say the actress, the lead actress in it is fucking phenomenal. 
um, you know, for everything that's kind of going on around her, she's just very natural. And, uh, I don't know. It, I don't know. I have to watch more of it, but in some ways uses physicality very well. I don't know. Some people hold the camera very well and that's something that she, that she seems to do. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I was really happy with the last episode. You know, I, I know I mentioned I was having a bit of a confidence crisis. And then, uh, maybe it was needing it to happen, but I feel like episode 60 peeled off pretty easily. And, you know, I don't know. I knew it was going to be a hard one today. Not only was I up late, but yesterday I went on this, like, literally my legs are jelly. <laughs> I went on this hike with my girlfriend. It was supposed to be a four-mile hike. I think it ended up being, like, six um, and it was just fucking brutal. We got lost three different times and, uh, to correct at some point we had to go down this. I mean, if it was a, if this was a ski slope, it would have been a black diamond. I mean, the thing was like nearly fucking vertical, but we're going down it. And of course, hiking uphill is difficult, but I think people underestimate the difficulty of doing anything downhill because you have to use weird stabilizer muscles that you don't use all the time. And even if you're just standing there, you're just, your muscles are in constant strain. And my girlfriend, how do I say it? Doesn't have phenomenal balance, which is sort of surprising because she did, uh, she was a gymnast when she was growing up. And yet when we do these things like having to walk downhill, she just steps very precariously. Whereas I'm kind of just kind of go with it. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know what that is, that reflex of like being able to balance yourself or just kind of trusting, and even if things start to go a little hairy, you can sort of compensate for it. Like, kind of like leaping on rocks across a river or something like that. Like, you just kind of have to go and do it. Um, But that would, like, freak my girlfriend out. And even walking downhill is precarious for her. So I'm spending most of my time on this incline, even if I'm standing sideways, just sort of standing there. And I didn't realize until we got to the bottom, which took, like, felt like 30 minutes to get down this hill. Um how much energy you expend doing that. So, and that was like halfway through the fucking hike. So we still had like three miles to go after that. And at one point it would just, I felt like we were going back uphill endlessly. And it was the most excruciating hike we've ever done. And I'm, I'm sure we've done longer. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure we've done some that were steeper, but it was like, I had to stop a couple times and it was like, I, I really felt psychologically defeated you know, and this was just a hike, you know, your boys run a couple half marathons, and, uh, I, I, I didn't struggle with a half marathon the way I struggled with this hike, so, yeah, waking up today, my legs just feel like jelly, so here I am sitting, talking to you folks, rambling on about, uh, books and movies, I don't know what's going on in the world, man. Trump's not letting go in the White House, that's for sure. Um, it is kind of funny. They had this article that uh, uh, they said Trump finally admitted that Biden won the election, but he's not conceding. Um, there's something about this 24-hour news cycle where we have to make news and we have to manufacture news all the time. And maybe it reminds me of, I was talking about the way that Rudy Giuliani is depicted in the Borat film. There's something about that that's a microcosm for how I'm sort of like experiencing the world of news and stuff, which is when you actually see the footage of what happened in the Rudy Giuliani thing, not much happened and certainly not what people are 
you know, what people initially were purporting to have taken place, which is Rudy, Rudy Giuliana. It, look, if you just looked at the news, you would have thought that Rudy Giuliani solicited a, knowingly solicited a 15-year-old girl for sex in a hotel room and they have it on film. When you actually watch the footage, you realize within the narrative of the movie, as an audience member, we know that this person is supposed to be 15. Clearly, the actress playing this person is not 15. And nowhere in that scene is is it ever made clear to Rudy Giuliani that she was 15. He thinks he's sitting across from, you know, a young, attractive uh, uh, news reporter. You know, and... If you look at the physicality, she, she, you know, anyone in their right mind would have thought that she was seducing him. Now, I know he's married. I know this doesn't look good as a politician, but other, it's just kind of a look into somebody's life that we kind of know happens all the time. You know, is what we saw Rudy Giuliani doing any different than what a lot of rock stars do or what celebrities do or actors do? Um, this kind of shit happens all the time. And... Uh, anyone would have thought that this person was putting the moves on them, right? Oh, come into the bedroom. Let me help you take your microphone off. Rudy Giuliani assessed the situation, I think, the way anybody would, which is that this girl is coming on to me because I'm a powerful man. Of course, she's much younger than I am. Of course, she can't possibly be physically attracted to me, but she's attracted to power. And it's not until Borat jumps in with his uh, G-string or his assless chaps or whatever he's wearing... um, uh, that he hears 15 and freaks the fuck out and rightly gets the fuck out of there. Now, again, I'm not saying it looks good. I'm not saying Rudy, Rudy Giuliani Rudy Giuliani's a good guy. Um, I'm just saying it's not what we're talking about. And so I've just seen this headline all day today about Trump finally admits that Biden won the election. But when you see the quote, it's something he says in passing. You know, And you know he doesn't really believe it. You know? Or if he does believe it, I'm just saying it's not like he's conceded anything. You know, Trump says a thousand things a day, but it's like because we have this 24-hour news cycle, we just have to take, you know, just the, uh, the, 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 sh- the, you know, the shavings of what somebody says and sort of spin an entire uh, article about it. But when you really look at it, there's not much there. You know, these things don't really stand up to a lot of scrutiny. <clears throat> yeah, people just eat it up. I don't know. I feel like people, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, if you just sort of consume news all day, to me, that's, that's a problem. You know, I think there's something, I mean, obviously there's the part where, you know, we hate, if you're a, if you're a liberal, you hate the conservatives. If you're conservative, you hate the liberals. So a lot of what people do is they just like to see people who they think are dumb and they feel smarter than engage in the world. Like as long as we have someone to point to and say, well, at least I'm not that person, then we get to feel good about ourselves. But I think it's, that's a big part of it. But there's something else too. I think people now more than ever just look at the cacophony of what the world appears to be. And there's some, I'm not saying it makes them happy, but there's something about that adrenaline rush or whatever it is of just seeing the chaos and having such a strong visceral reaction, especially if it's like loathing and hate that I think people are, are genuinely addicted to it. I think there's something about social media where just, even if you're just scrolling your Facebook feed, and you fucking hate everything that's there. I think people get addicted to that. I mean, I even wonder why I even click over to Facebook. I mean, I'm probably like you. I have like an ecosystem of websites that sometimes as something else is loading, I just mindlessly click through while I'm waiting for something else. You know, it's like I check the Instagram. I check the Facebook. I check my email. I check my email probably more times than I... I mean, 
how many times do I check my email a day? Maybe like 15. And it's not like I'm even doing it consciously. I'm just doing it out of habit. And it's the same thing with social media. When was, when have I ever, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think now. When have I ever clicked over to Facebook and seen something that was remotely interesting? Or maybe interesting is the wrong word. Maybe it's remotely satisfying. Nothing. It all makes me angry. In fact, you know, people say, well, yeah, Facebook sucks, but I enjoy staying connected with people. The, the fact that I'm connected with you on Facebook, I've probably grown to dislike you. Like, the reason I like you is because I only see certain parts of you, you know? And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying, <clears throat> until recently, this is how people engaged in the world. They were very selective about what they showed people, and then they had a personal and a, they had a public and a personal life, Right? Now we're just getting constant exposure to people. People are using social media as a way to like reveal all of themselves, and that's celebrated, right? People think this is honesty. Well, I'm not entirely sure that that's true. I, or maybe if it is honesty, I don't think there's anything wrong with keeping things to yourself. You know, the fact that you have some compartmentalization in your life and you're, you're sort of thoughtful about the things that you present to the world and the things you keep to yourself, I don't think that just means that you're inculcated into the, the cult of the dullards or that you're somehow, uh, what do they do with the matrix? Everybody overuses this phrase, red pill or blue pill. You know, it doesn't mean that you're in the fucking matrix because you, you don't want every social interaction you have to be this sort of catharsis. You know, I think Sam, was it Sam Harris? I think Sam Harris wrote this book years ago. Maybe uh, 15 years ago. I think it was called Online. You have to look it up, but it's a very sort of short little, probably more of a tract than a book about lying and honesty. And I think he goes into this topic of, you know, sometimes not saying the truth is actually a form of, of uh, politeness. You know, if somebody walks up to you and says, hey, how are you doing? They don't really, they don't really want to hear about the state of your bowels. You know, if it's been a loose, if it's, if it's been a loose stool day and somebody says, hey, how's it going? You can't say, well, my, uh, my stools have not been fully formed. That's not really polite. You know, you've, you've, uh, you've unwittingly invited somebody to now uh, be considering the state of your bowels when that's not really what they wanted. What they really wanted to hear was that you're fine and move on with their life. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm just trying to identify that even when I log on to Facebook, most of the stuff I see I don't like. And in fact, the things that I see people who I do enjoy post, it makes me like them less. What is that? I mean, this is where you really start sounding like an old man, but it's like, when I think of having kids in the future, if I do have kids, I sort of, like, don't kids spend way too much time talking to each other now? Like, aren't they way too connected? Like, isn't it insane for those of us that grew up at a time where you didn't have TikTok and you didn't have Instagram? Like, you would go home at the end of the school day, and yeah, you may have one or two friends that you called on the phone. Or, you know, I was part of the generation where people were just starting to use, like, an AOL, Instant Messenger, right? And you would have some people who would be on there all the time. But more often than not, when school was over, school was over. 
you know, and the people that you went to school with every day disappeared. And now it's just like, yeah, the school schedule starts and stops at a certain time, but that social connection continues not just, you know, when school is out, but for the rest of your life. You know, I've always thought of social media in our lives now as like you move through life and you just gather people like Indiana Jones walking through the the fucking temple in the beginning of, is it Raiders of the Lost Ark? Whichever one where the boulder is. There's that whole opening sequence where he walks through the temple and there's just spider webs everywhere. And it's like you, you just accumulate these webs of people as you go through your life. And because we have social media, people just stick to us. I mean, the most insane interaction of my life was when I was in New Orleans with my girlfriend. She was there for a conference. And I felt like such a, uh, I don't know what you call it. If you have a, there's a sugar daddy, right? And then there's a sugar mama. So, but what are you, are you a sugar baby or how, how does that work? Clearly I'm not involved in this lifestyle, but what are you called when you, when you have a sugar mama or when you have a sugar daddy? Are you just a sugar baby? Um, but anyway, your boy was a sugar baby in New Orleans while my girlfriend was at her conference. And I was just spending the day riding a bike around New Orleans when it was like 106 degrees outside, drinking ices and just like seeing the fucking area, seeing, uh, where did I go? What's that famous part? I don't fucking know. Anyway, I was, I biked like 13 miles around New Orleans. <clears throat> I went to the store, got an icy. I ended up hanging out at the pool for like four hours And so there was these like cohorts that would come by the pool, you know, every hour or so. And at one point this girl comes, uh, she's at some conference of her own, kind of a middle-aged lady. And, uh, for some reason I (laughs) there was two things. She told about this story about like, she was just sort of relaying her conference to like people there. And she was clearly way too talkative and nobody was really interested, but she said a couple things. One Kelly Clarkson sang for them, which was insane to me, but that's like the circuit right? That's like the corporate gig circuit. You have people that just sort of make tons of money on the side, like singing corporate gigs that you've never fucking heard of. Or like some Maroon 5 will play some rich, some rich producer's son's bar mitzvah, you know, for like 500k or 1.5 million dollars or some shit like that. Um, So Kelly Clarkson was singing at a conference and then she relates this speaker, which was insane to me. It's actually something I've thought about and I don't think the premise is entirely useless. But she was talking about there was this girl who had written a book and had done like, maybe she had been on Dr. Phil or Oprah or all these shows, but she had written a book and now has a living as a, you know, um, uh, a speaker at um, conferences. And her whole concept was like, I used to be depressed. I used to be unemployed. I didn't do X. I didn't do Y. I was uh, dealing with mental health. I was disabled or whatever the fuck it was. And it was like, I couldn't do the thing I was supposed to do with my life. And she says that one day she saw... Uh, a NASA spaceship launch or something and she saw the countdown and then the rocket just took off and that's where she had this epiphany that she's just going to go through her life now and whenever she's faced with something she doesn't want to do she's just going to close her eyes and say three two one blast off and just do it she's just going to do it before she can stop herself now I've done that since hearing that I've done that I've literally stood in front of something I didn't want to do. I've thought of that, and I just think, three, two, one, blast off. Now, a lot of times I don't do shit, but sometimes it gets me, uh, it gets me to do something, right? And even if I don't do the actual three, two, one, blast off thing, of course, the hardest thing to do is just to start sometimes. Uh, even today, you know, your boy was up till seven, slept, 
probably till like 10.30, so I got like three and a half hours of sleep. And I had a shit ton of work today. And it took me like two hours to get started because I'm bullshitting around on YouTube. I'm playing some chess. I make some food. And it's like I'm trying to find things to do to keep me from doing the work I have to do. But at some point, you just got to fucking do it. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it takes a push. And once you get, it's like going to the gym. You know, I'm not going to the gym anymore. But I remember years ago when I went to the gym, the hardest part was getting there. You know, once you're actually up on the treadmill, it's not so bad. And you think, Jesus Christ, why did I struggle with this? Of course. And when you're always happy to have had done it. You're always happy to have completed it. It's the getting started that's the hardest part. Um, and it's like that way. So yeah, anyway, it's a fine idea. I don't know how you turn that, I don't know how you turn that into a career, but they did. But the point of all this bullshit is, Jesus Christ, the point of all this is, and the crazy part of this conversation with this woman is, you know, there's probably about 10 of us by the pool. We're talking for an hour. And at one point she just goes, oh, we should all connect on Facebook. And everybody around the pool was just like, oh, well, well, there you go. And just kind of scattered like fucking cockroaches. And it was just like, that was illustrative for me. That was illustrative for me. That idea of, oh, this is how a lot of us live now, which is, you know, I remember being a kid and being in the Bahamas and meeting a kid who loved Michael Jackson as much as I did. And we were like vacation buddies for like four or five days or however long we were fucking. It felt like a fucking lifetime. I'm sure it was like four or five days. But I remember we exchanged addresses and he sent me a video recording of the Remember the Time video by Michael Jackson because I had never seen it. I was a Michael Jackson super fan and we were just sort of talking about shit that we liked. And he was like, have you seen the Remember the Time video? And I went, no. And he told me about it. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to see that. And he's like, oh, I have it recorded. I, ba- I wrote down my address for him. I begged him to send me a copy. And eventually he did, which is pretty cool. But that was it. I can't tell you the person's name. I can't even tell you what the fuck he looked like. Could you imagine if he and I were still connecting on Facebook and I had to see what this guy had for breakfast every day for the last 30 years? What the fuck? Why should we connect on Facebook? It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I look at my, quote, friends on Facebook. I don't know how many I have. Is it 1,500? Is it 1,900? I I really don't know. Um, I probably don't even honestly like most of those people. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's Especially playing music. It's just so much, like, social networking and stuff like that. But it's like... I don't know. It's just insane to me. And I've been guilty of this too when I'm younger in life, but especially as an adult, you know, to see the thing that people my own age and older are posting on social media and thinking, you can't even, you don't, we don't really think or register or fathom who is seeing this. The number of people from our childhood who are seeing every moment of our lives. And I think that feeds into this fear, this constant fear that we have all the time of being judged for everything that we do. We both feel 100% accountable to every single person we've ever met in our life for who we are, where we're at, what we think, what we believe. I mean, there are certain things I'm not supposed to talk about on this podcast, but here's a hypothetical situation that definitely didn't happen. Definitely didn't happen. Completely hypothetical didn't happen. But here's a hypothetical situation that one might have experienced in their workplace. You might be in a workplace environment sometime and you might have a guest speaker who comes. And especially now, sometimes you have these 
work trainings, right, where it's either about cultural humility or racial sensitivity or something like that. And imagine you have this facilitation by a middle-aged white woman, um, and the prefacing that happens with a conversation like this is, is, is kind of like patronizing. You know, I'm sure you can imagine, hypothetically, not that this happened to me, but it may have happened in your own trainings at some point. She goes on this long diatribe. She may go on this long diatribe about, um, uh, you know, we're all a work in progress, and I may be a work in progress, and hey, look, if I happen to say something that doesn't land right with you, I invite you uh, to call me on it and, and help me understand. And it's just like, the, I, I, I get it, and I'm not saying it's a bad impulse, and I think that that's actually the thing that we want more of in the world. Like, we want people being sensitive. We want people to be accountable for the things that we say, and we want to consider everybody's perspective. And of course, nobody wants to say anything to offend people or say something that's um, malicious or cruel or, you know, like I'm reading Sphere by Michael Crichton, and look, I'm kind of embarrassed by some of the stuff that's in Like, I'm kind of embarrassed for Michael Crichton. Right, And so none of us want to go through life and be that type of person who's saying overtly uh, uh, racist or prejudiced or just, you know, insensitive stuff. But I, there's something about the way that people might present themselves if they were giving a presentation of this sort where there's so much fear involved. You know, this is not my analogy. This is actually an Adam Carolla analogy. And I know we spent a lot of time talking about Adam Carolla. And so you may dis- completely disregard this and think it's stupid, but I think there's actually a lot of truth to this. He equated a lot of what we're experiencing socially with an episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh, I've never seen the original, but I do remember how it was dramatized in the film version, Twilight Zone, the movie. And I don't remember the premise exactly. I think someone gets stranded in their car and they end up at a house. And when they get there, it's a very bizarre house. And for some reason, the kid seems to run the place. Well, he comes to learn that the kid has this psychic power where he can do whatever he wants because if he if anyone disagrees with him he sends them to the cornfield. He basically with the powers of his minds with the power of his mind sends them to the cornfield where they're banished. And so the the the, the parents everybody else in the household lives in in a, in a perpetual state of fear of this child. And so he gets to do whatever he wants. He gets to watch whatever he wants, he gets to eat whatever he wants. He basically walks around dressed like a cowboy and plays cowboys and Indians all day with people. And if anybody ever wants to stop playing or doesn't, doesn't give him the food he wants or doesn't, doesn't let him watch what he wants on TV, he just banishes them to the cornfield. So he has this power of canceling people at any time. And so you have people who go through life with this sort of plastered on grin and pol- this sort of feigned politeness, um, this sort of saccharine um, apologism, this perpetual apologism that people have for things they haven't even done yet, this preemptive apology for things they haven't even done yet. And in the event that I say anything that is remotely reprehensible or that you have any issue with, by all means, please tell me, enlighten me. Um, Whatever you do, don't cancel me. (laughs) Whatever you do, young man, don't banish me to the cornfield. Now, I realize that sounds like the most fucking typical white dude thing to say, right? And again, I told myself I, I'm not going to acknowledge the criticism, but I, I read the reviews. I, I, I realize that there are people who hate this fucking podcast, uh, and I get it. I, I think most of the criticisms are wrong, but look, I'm a white dude with a podcast, and this is kind of the thing right now, and uh, you got a lot of white dudes with podcasts kind of giving their take on social issues, and, and I get it. Nobody wants to hear from me. Nobody cares what I have to say about the situation. 
But I think that's observably true. And I don't care what race you are. I think that's the way things are right now. People live in a perpetual state of fear. And so, of course, my real point here is not about cancel culture as much as it is about the way that this interconnectedness that we have all the time, this sort of ubiquitous accountability we feel to, and not just everybody that we work with, everybody that we've met in our social circle, but in some ways, people, people we've met throughout our entire lives that we're still connected with, who we have no fucking business being connected to, we feel accountable for everything we, th- we think and do and say. And we see the way these stories get played out in the world. In some ways, it goes back to, I'm talking about the minutia. The minutia that means nothing, we see it get fed into the news cycle and we see how important these things become. You know, I'm picturing like cotton candy. It's just a little bit of sugar and maybe a little bit of flavoring. I don't, I don't really know what cotton candy is, honestly. But you know, you, can you picture cotton candy being made? You don't even see it happening. And yet, the cotton candy vendor is spinning that little cardboard spindle or whatever, and it just sort of accumulates, right? And before you know it, you have this big fucking pillow of cotton candy. That's kind of what the news is, right? It's people just looking for these, this, these germinal bits of nothingness and spinning something meaningful out of it. When really it's just a bunch of empty calories. It doesn't actually mean shit. Um, But yes, I don't know. I see this drama playing out, this sort of personal drama that we all have where we all feel accountable for everything we think, do, and say. And it's like, that's, I think that's why you get these sort of... um, it's declamatory. Is that the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Oh, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. The point is that we're all living in fear. And yeah, it's fear of politics. It's fear of, you know, it's fear of Trump. It's fear of, uh, there's a lot of things to be scared about, but I, I, I you know, um, I think, I think something that we're really scared of is each other. <laughs> you know, we're scared we're going to say the wrong thing. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting. Maybe that's actually something that I just sit with, right? I mean, I've said it a couple of times. I said, you know, sometimes I feel like I go astray when I just talk about other people. Not that I really think I'm wrong, <laughs> but again, I'm anticipating the reaction um, that I think people might have to some of the things I say sometimes. And so I tell myself, well, maybe you should just keep it personal. Maybe we should not speculate on the motivations of other people. Maybe we should just talk about our own experience, you know, and uh, leave other people to themselves because I'm afraid of that backlash. And again, it's not because I really think I'm wrong. I just, I, I realize there's this, uh, there's another operating system out there that a lot of people are functioning under. And uh, I don't know. I, I think I take this strong reaction to it because I'm, I'm disappointed that I feel so far, so far removed from it. You know, because this, whatever this operating system is, um, on paper, I agree with its principles, but the way it's playing out is really odious to me. And I don't know. It, it just, I feel like I'm sort of set up to be misunderstood, you know, because, because I feel some opposition to it and the way that the, uh, you know, the way that the, uh, I don't even know what to call it. I'm calling it an operating system. Is it the zeitgeist? I don't know. 
you know, but it's posturing itself as virtue and it's posturing itself as morality. And so, you know, if you're standing outside of that, you know, people think you're not uh, virtuous. People think you're not moral. People think that you're, <clears throat> I don't even know the word for it. I don't know what people say, but, um, but you risk being sent to the cornfield and, uh, and that's scary. And you know what? Maybe it's a privileged type of fear, you know, or maybe it's who gives a fuck. You can dry your tears on your uh, white male privilege or whatever it is, but, um, you know, that's my truth. That's how I feel, and that's my truth. So do with that what you will. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is, uh, <laughs> I was kind of, uh, I was floundering there for a minute. I wasn't sure where we were going to go with this podcast. I still don't know where we went, honestly, but, um, uh, I'm not going to crucify myself for this episode. I think uh, whatever happened today is probably a consequence of the grumpy hike I took and uh, staying up till 7 in the morning reading The Exorcist. So um, what's next? I don't know. I think I'm going to read this book, Shibumi, by Trevanian. I think is the, it's, a, it's a moniker of another author. But Shibumi is this book that you, I've seen referenced in the culture a few times. I've had a copy of it for like 10 years, and I've just never read it. And... Uh, as I'm waiting for my next books to arrive in the mail, um, uh, I don't know. I need something to read for the next couple of days. So I think I'm going to read this book called Shibumi by Trevanian. It's kind of interesting, actually. I think it references Go, which uh, is an interesting game like chess. Um, there was this period a couple of years ago where I would go to bed every night watching Go videos. There's a whole rabbit hole you can go down of um, uh, Japanese without translation, maybe there are subtitles, but otherwise untranslated uh, tournament, uh, these sort of film tournament Go games, uh, where it has running commentary, you have the people playing Go, and they're silent, (laughs) and you just have this running commentary, like you would with a chess match, but uh, there was something so calming about it, I would go to bed to these Go videos, and I think there's a, I don't know, the author uses the game of Go, the different stages of the game, you know, chess has like the opening, the middle game, and the end game, um... Uh, Go has its own stages. I don't know what they are. They're all Japanese phrases, but um, but that's how the book's structured. It's supposed to be a, a novel about I don't know if it's political or corporate intrigue, suspense. I think it's supposed to be kind of uh, pulpy. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, folks. Thankfully, I'm looking down at the time and I'm seeing that our hour is almost up. So um, let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, put a pin in things. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, you can on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars, please. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast. Let's see if we can blow the bad reviews out of the water. And uh, if you can think of one person in your life you think would like the podcast, go ahead and send them your favorite episode. Um, yeah, man, we're in the 60s now. That's cool. Episode 61 in the bag. Uh, stay tuned. And we'll talk to you next week. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And ciao for now.